so exciting um, and it is great to be back here in Reno uh, and I want to thank first of all mention your wonderful lieutenant governor is here lieutenant governor Marshall she's somewhere around here I want to thank her we had a, a great talk about Nevada one little funny fact about me I am the chair of the tourism caucus of the United States Senate uh, and we actually just passed a really important bill last week with the great support and work of your two senators, Catherine Cortez Masto and Jackie Rosen, um, uh, to make sure that we keep advertising our country around the world, and it's called Brand USA. And what I love about it is that it's not just about the biggest cities in the U.S. that we get to advertise. It is about places like right here, Reno, Nevada. So, thank you. Um, and then we also, I want to thank uh, Christine Keller, the owner of this amazing bookstore. Uh, and I hope you'll go and get some books. I love independent bookstores. Um, and my husband loves them so much that he actually proposed to me in an independent bookstore. That is a true story. Uh, it was very romantic, uh, but he decided to do it in the non-fiction aisle. So it would be, he did. So it would be realistic. And here's the best part of all. It was on Lincoln's birthday because he loved Lincoln. So it was February 12th in the non-fiction aisle by the Lincoln books. And then, of course, I start to plan our wedding. The next day I start calling like after the weekend, like three days later. And every place I call, they would go, oh, did you get engaged on Valentine's Day? <laughs> and I'm like, no, it was Lincoln's birthday. Okay, so um, it is great to be here with her. And then I also, of course, um, wanted to thank uh, this city and this county, and particularly uh, Sarah, your chair, uh, for painting Nevada blue in that last election in such, such an incredible way. And I was actually, I mean, not only sending my two buddies, by the way, there's only just a handful of states in the country that had the wisdom to send not one but two women to the U.S. Senate. And, and Nevada and Minnesota are two of them. Uh, and I was, had a lot of fun on the debate stage in Los Angeles. I think I want to have another Western debate. I like these debates. 
And um, when we were asked about um, women leadership after President Obama uh, had said something about this recently, about having more women in charge, I was asked and I noted uh, that I had once been on Trevor Noah's show and uh, how I had explained to him that in the history of the entire United States Senate, uh, there had only been like 50 women, 50 some women, uh, in the U.S. Senate and 2,000 some men. And he said, if a nightclub had those numbers, they would shut it down. <laughs> but what he needs to do is to visit Nevada where you have the first women majority <laughs> legislature. And you have done such great things. I have been hearing about it, of course, from my friends in Congress. And when I've come out here many times and visited uh, with your leadership uh, in uh, Carson City and heard all about uh, the incredible work you did to make it easier for people to vote, right? Uh, including people who are out of prison. Uh, and that was just an incredible thing that you did and the work that you've done uh, when it comes to energy and to education. And I just want to thank you uh, for the work that you all played in changing uh, that and in making Nevada uh, the progressive state that it is. And guess what? What, I'm, what I think a progressive is, that you've got to be a progressive, but only if you can prove that you can make progress, okay? That is what I do. So... My story, I think you've heard about it. First of all, we're having a lot of momentum right now in my campaign. Um, and we have seen crowds like this in the middle of snowstorms in Cedar Rapids yesterday. On New Year's Eve uh, in Keene, New Hampshire, we had a town hall at 5 o'clock on New Year's Eve. I thought this is going to be. But I got to use my best line ever. I was like, we had these commit to vote cards. And I'm like, kind of like commit to caucus cards. And I'm like, come on, you guys, sign them. It's New Year's Eve. You won't remember what you did the next day anyway. So we are seeing this momentum. And part of it was a debate, but part of it is people are starting to understand what I stand for. I know I don't have a lot of name ID coming into this race. I get that. But I also know that the reason we have the early states, the reason you're all out here today uh, in the middle of this new year is because the early states, you demand that you actually meet the candidates and you get out there and you understand who people are. And it means that not everyone that runs has to be a billionaire. Okay, there are a few running. They're all great and everything. Uh, but early states get that maybe the person that should lead the ticket is not the billionaire. And maybe the person that should lead the ticket isn't the first one that everyone knows. How do I know that this works? Because a lot of times when the early states got done with their work, guess who we gave the country? That's how Jimmy Carter came out. No one thought that a peanut farmer from uh, from Georgia was going to be our president, but he was. And no one thought that Bill Clinton was going to win this thing. And no one thought Barack Obama was going to be the president of the United States. That is what I'm talking about. So we have had this momentum. I got a text from a friend the other day, and she was saying, you're going to say congratulations on your surge, but she had an autocorrect, and it said, congratulations on your insurgency, uh, which I actually I actually thought was not a bad thing to say. I kind of like the idea of that. And the reason, by the way, my color is green, uh, and you see it on your shape there with your state, the reason that my color is green is that it is the color of Paul Wellstone. 
And many of you may not know him, but he was a senator from Minnesota. He was this incredible force to be reckoned with. He took on a really rich guy. No one thought he had a chance, but he rode around in a green bus, and we've got one of those too, and went everywhere. And in his ads, he would talk really, really fast like this, and he would say, I have to talk twice as much because I have less money than everyone else. And he did that. That's where his ads. And he would run back and forth in these parades. It was this incredible moment to see. And then he won, and then he won again, and then he was up for a election in that really hard year where he took the courageous vote and I strongly agreed with him on this. Uh, he opposed the war in Iraq, uh, which has, by the way, led to some of where we are right now, but we will get to that in a minute. He opposed that war, but he was still going to win that race in a really tough race. And he was sick that last year. He had MS. He told the state he had MS. He couldn't run back and forth anymore. And instead he would stand on the back of the green bus and he would wave to people. And he would stand with his wife. And it was only months later that they both perished in this horrible, horrible plane crash. And we lost him. But my lasting memory of that was not that. It was him on the back of that bus. And what happened was he had so many people that he'd energized to run for him in these green shirts around his bus that you didn't even notice he wasn't running himself. That is grassroots politics. That's what you did when you changed over the legislature in Nevada and when you made these major monumental shifts in your state. That's what you did. And by the way, and this is where I'm going to start, you didn't do it alone with a fired up Democratic base, as important as that was. That was the main thing, but it wasn't the only thing. You brought people with you. You brought independents with you, and yes, you even brought some moderate Republicans. And that is what I have always done in all of my campaigns, and that is how I've governed. Because when you think of all the things people are talking about on the debate stage that are so important, to, and they go back and forth, and we know there's not going to be agreement with every single person out there. There's not even agreement in our own party, all right? But we are not a party like the party of Donald Trump where he says jump and they say how high. We are a party that has disagreements here and there. That's okay. But we have to remember that what unites us is bigger than what divides us. And we have to remember that not every person out there that has voted with you in Nevada or that's voted with me in Minnesota agrees with every single economic platform that you have. But they do agree on one thing, and this is where we will start. They agree that this country is so much bigger than that guy in the White House. They believe that the heart of our country is so much bigger than his heart. So if you just see this as an economic check, and believe me, it is. I was out at Minden. We were talking about rural issues, something that I was the senator that is left on that debate stage of five that was the only one that has to be on the Agriculture Committee that has worked on rural issues time and time again. We know how important those economic are issues with this effects of his trade war and some of the other things that he's embarked on and his bad immigration policy, uh, which is not good for our country's economy. And we know the problems with prescription drugs and everything he hasn't come through on that he promised. But it is more than an economic check. This is also, this election is a decency check. This election is a values check. This election is a patriotism check. When you have a president that is standing next to a ruthless dictator in Vladimir Putin and is asked by a reporter on the world stage about Russia invading our election, not with tanks, not with missiles, but with a cyber attack, 
What does he do? Does he believe his own intelligence people? No. He makes a joke about it. Think about this. Thousands of people from your great state have lost their lives on the battlefields. There are veterans here today, people who have fought for our country, standing up for that simple idea of democracy. Hundreds of thousands of Americans have lost their lives. Look at World War II. That was fundamentally about democracy, about people should have the say in their own lives and what was going to happen with the future of our world. That was about democracy. Think of those four little girls who lost their lives in that church in Alabama at the height of the civil rights movement in that bombing. They were innocents, but they were innocents because people were trying to hold on to that democracy and expand that democracy to them, and other people were trying to push back on that democracy. So many of our big battles and our big moments, good and bad, have been about democracy. And this guy, he makes a joke about it. So that is why for so many people in this country right now, this is a patriotism check. It is like this rancher that I met in Minnesota who took me on a tour of his uh, cattle cattle farm and when we get out of there we're dodging these big cows in this ATV and I thought this is not a good way for me to die um, and then he gets done everyone leaves, the media leaves, the other ranchers leave, then we're in his house and I look at him and he goes you know what I gotta, I gotta tell you something you know we voted for Donald Trump and I said what do you mean the ranchers your family, he said no I just don't like to talk about me, I, I don't call myself I. I, I just can't he said I say we and he said, we voted for Donald Trump, and we did it because we were mad about health care. And then he says, but then I saw him stand in front of that wall. And I said, no, that wall that wall's not built. And he said, no, no, the CIA wall. He said, the day after the inauguration, and I saw this too, and many of you did, Donald Trump gave a partisan speech in front of that sacred wall with all of those stars, of those anonymous CIA agents who lost their lives on behalf of our country in the line of duty and he gave a partisan speech and this guy remembers this and he said that was wrong then he said then it was the boy scout speech he said i used to be a boy scout by the way my husband was a boy scout my husband grew up in a trailer home with five brothers there were six in his family and five of the six became eagle scouts but i never say which one didn't make it because i don't want to embarrass my husband um, but this guy he remembers that moment he remembers uh, when he, part, Trump gave that partisan speech to those young boys and he said that was wrong. That was when I knew, he said, that what I did, it was wrong, I was mad, but it wasn't the right thing. It wasn't me being patriotic. Or this guy in uh, New Hampshire and a big line of voters, they were happy, it was a little warmer than this. Uh, they had little stickers on, it was in a rural area, and they said, I'm a climate change voter. Uh, I'm a reproductive rights voter. Uh, one said, I'm a Supreme Court voter. And this guy comes up in a brown jacket, he doesn't have a sticker on. I said, sir, uh, you don't have a sticker on. And he leans over and he goes, yeah, that's because that's I was a Trump voter. And he goes, they don't know my neighbors, they don't know, and so don't say anything, but I am not doing it again. So let us not forget, let us not forget, which is one of the reasons I went to Douglas County, and I will continue to go to rural areas and suburban areas and all areas of our country. Let us not forget that those people are out there. 
and that we need to bring them with us instead of shutting them out, and that we need to build a bigger tent and a wider coalition and have longer coattails because the stakes could not be higher. And if you don't believe me with my stories, look at what just happened in Virginia, the state of Virginia, where they flipped the state house and the state senate with this incredibly diverse group of candidates across that state. Or look what happened in Louisiana, where they re-elected a Democratic governor. Or in Kentucky, where Mitch McConnell now has a Democratic governor. You know what those two last states have in common the night before those elections? You know who went down there to campaign for their opponent? That's right, Donald Trump. So my question is, where can we send him next? In those states, it wasn't just our fired up Democratic base. It was not. It was also independents and moderate Republicans. And that is a coalition we need to build to win this thing and win it big. My background, I have won every race, every place, every time. I have won all the way down to elementary school when my slogan, which I have since discarded, but maybe I'll bring it back for Reno, was all the way with Amy Kay. I have won in the reddest of red every single time, the rural districts, uh, the ones bordering Iowa, the ones bordering North and South Dakota that Trump has won by double digits. I won 42 counties that he won, and yes, three times, every time, I have won Michelle Bachman's district. And I have not done it by selling out on values. Opposite. I've simply done it by going not just where it's comfortable, but where it's uncomfortable. I have done it by standing out in the middle of a snowstorm with no hat or gloves with four inches of snow on my head, just to show my hair wouldn't move that day. I have done it by reaching out to people in the suburban and exurban areas and bringing them with me. That's what we need to bring our country back. So, when you go, and your state has been just incredible in the changes you've made and how you have respected people and brought people with you, I know that. But when you go and you talk to carpenters in Pennsylvania like I have, we lost that state in 2016, or dock workers in Michigan, or dairy farmers in Wisconsin, or people in Ohio, or Iowa, or Minnesota, where actually Hillary had her lowest percentage of any state that she won lower percentage than in Nevada. So I understand the people in the Midwest. So my plan, by the way, and it's a good one, it is to build a beautiful blue wall of votes around those Midwestern states and make Donald Trump pay for it. So, but when you talk to them, most of them, we know that Donald Trump's a bully, but that's not how they actually think of it. When they start thinking and wondering about what they should do in terms of voting, with some of them having supported him in the past. They think about this. Yeah, they have jobs, but they have to work harder and harder and harder every single day to try to afford their mortgage or to send their kids to school or to pay for prescription drugs. And then what do they see him do? They say him pass that tax bill where so much of that money went to the top. And what is he, and if you don't believe me, he went down to Mar-a-Lago after that got done. He went down there and was with a bunch of his friends. Were any of you there? Good, I just, I didn't want to embarrass anyone. You know, I'm a visitor here. But he went down there and he said, y'all just got a lot richer. 
That's what he said. And we are going to hold him to that when I'm in a debate with him. I cannot wait. Because I'm going to be able to say to him, you know what? You know how you got started out with $413 million from your dad over the course of your career? You know what I got? My grandpa worked 1,500 feet underground in the iron ore mines his whole life. He saved money in a coffee can in the basement to send my dad to a two-year community college. That was my family's trust. And you cannot fit $413 million in a coffee can. But the way I look at it, when people give you opportunity, if it's your grandparents or it's your parents or a neighbor or a teacher or someone you work with, you do not go into the world with a sense of entitlement like he does. You go into the world with a sense of obligation, an obligation to lift people up instead of hoarding it for yourself, an obligation to lift people up instead of slamming them down. That's what you do. And so when you talk to those people in those states, they start thinking of one thing. They have to work harder when things go wrong. When things go wrong for him because of his self-inflicted wounds from that trade war, the fact that he hasn't invested enough in infrastructure like we should be doing in this state and rural broadband, explain to me why it is easier to make cell phone calls or to get rural broadband in the country of Iceland when they have volcanoes than it is in parts of Nevada. That makes no sense. That means we should be investing in infrastructure, which is why I'm the first candidate that came out for a plan for infrastructure. So as these workers look at this, they say, he promised me this, he promised me that, it didn't happen. But what's he doing when things go wrong for him in his big house with his good job? What does he do? He whines. They don't have time for whining in their lives. What does he do? He blames other people. He blames the head of the Federal Reserve. He appointed that guy. And I thought, I mean, that guy's just trying to do his job. He appointed, he, what is, who else does he blame? He blames Barack Obama. Uh, he blames the city of Baltimore. Uh, he blames the entire country of Denmark. Who does that? That is what he does. And when he was at that NATO conference a few weeks ago, and when uh, those world leaders were making fun of him, I, I, maybe I'm just more sort of like Harry Reid hardened, okay? By the way, I love Harry Reid, all right? Maybe I am, but I have heard senators make more fun of other senators than that. That was not that big a deal. That's how I view it. But what does he do? He can't handle it. He's so thin-skinned. He whines. He leaves the conference. He's not there at the end when all these decisions are made. He quit. America doesn't quit. That's what it's saying. So, remember, we don't want a whiner in the White House. Think about the promises he made in his campaign that he has not kept to regular people in this country. And then we go in this with an optimistic economic agenda. What does that mean? It means doing smart things about health care to make it more affordable. Practically, when you hear this debate about the Affordable Care Act, Affordable Care Act is now, I'm just going to be practical, 10 points more popular than the President of the United States. So no, I do not think we should be blowing it up. When you get to, you know, Minnesota's land of 10,000 lakes, so when you get to a river or a lake in our state and you're trying to cross it, you build a bridge, you do not blow it up. So what I think is the best answer is a non-profit public option, which Barack Obama wanted to do from the beginning, which would bring the cost of health care down. What else do I think we need? Take on the pharma companies. They think they own Washington. They think they own Washington. They do. 
They got written into law a provision that says Medicare can't negotiate for better prices. That is wrong. I have long led the bill to change that as president. I can get it done. We can bring in less expensive drugs from other countries. We can. I can see Canada from my porch in Minnesota. You can see those prices. You can. So, Bernie and I did an amendment once, Klobuchar Sanders, and a vote in the middle of the night. It was like midnight to see where people are on this. Fourteen Republicans voted with us. They may have been tired, not seen, but they, they did. And now Senator Grassley, the chair of the Finance Committee, the Republican, is carrying that bill with me. As president, you know what I found out? <laughs> a president can do this herself. You do not even need Congress. I found, yes, to get a waiver to bring in less expensive drugs from other countries. I found now on my website, you should check it out, 137 things that a president can do herself to help people in this country without Congress that are legal. We have to build trust immediately, immediately in a new presidency because right now people have felt left out. Other things we should be dealing with. Epidemic of opioids, epidemic of addiction, which also includes, by the way, meth, alcoholism, and crack cocaine. We must do more on mental health, which is a scourge in our country. And I have been willing to talk about this and take it on, in part because my dad, when I was growing up, struggled with alcoholism. By the time John and I got married, he had three DWIs. At that point, the judge said, you can choose treatment or jail. And he chose treatment. And in his words, he was pursued by grace. Because of his family, his faith, because of that treatment, he became sober for the rest of his life. And he is now 91. He is in assisted living. The AA group visits him there. And as he told me a year and a half ago, it's hard to get a drink around here anyway. <laughs> the point of this is that everyone should have that same right to be pursued by grace. And there is going to be so much money coming in from those pharma lawsuits. There is so much bad evidence against the ones that produce the opioids. We've got to make sure that money is well spent, that it doesn't just go to certain areas, that it goes to rural areas that are still struggling with the epidemic, that it goes to treatment, but that it also goes to mental health. And it goes to some of these other things that we have needs in our country. Last thing I'd mention, long-term care big elephant in the room. No one is dealing with it. It's not just seniors. It's also people who are struggling to take care of their own aging parents that they love, as well as their own kids. I, we see it all over the place. In my dad's case, he got long-term care insurance. I have no idea why. Thank God he did. He's now in a place with 16 other people. He likes it there. But I know when that insurance runs out, and it's in about a year and a half, and then he doesn't have much savings. He got married three times. <laughs> We don't have to go into that, not enough time. But so, then he goes on Medicaid. So it's going to be so important to keep Medicaid strong for everyone here. Um, I know where it is. I know that he can't stay where he is. I know the Catholic charity said he'd take him in. But that's what a lot of people deal with, much worse situations than his. So the answer is, hmm? He can live with me in the White House. Yeah, there you go. You know, it was at some... It was at some risk to me that I had you speak. The last time this happened to me yesterday in Cedar Rapids, someone said something. I said, what did you say? They were taking a cell phone call in the middle of my thing. Okay, so, so, 
seriously in long-term care, keeping Social Security strong by lifting the payroll tax. It's now at 113,000. You stop paying it. You could put a donut hole and have it start again at 250,000. There are a whole bunch of people that support that. That would keep it solvent, so it wouldn't start paying out 10 to 15 percent less in 2034, which is what's going to happen. Long-term care, make it easier to pay for long-term care insurance, make it easier to pay for long-term care. I have a way to pay for this, found out from a rich guy in Boston. People set up trust funds for their kids, that's great, fine, if they can. But if you even take the ones that are 500000 and over, and you don't tax them, you just tax the appreciation which is the gain on it, you would literally bring in over $100 billion that can be used to pay for long-term care. Other things, immigration reform. As you know so well in this state, immigrants don't diminish America, they are America. And this means being really smart uh, when it comes to how we do immigration reform. We were so close, we passed it in 2013. I was part of that effort on the Judiciary Committee. I view it as an economic issue. Uh, we need workers in our fields and in our factories, in our nursing homes, in our hospitals. There is a way to do this with a path to citizenship. Grover Norquist supported this bill, in addition to the AFL-CIO and the migrant workers groups. Why? It brings the debt down. Congressional Budget Office score, deficit down, $158 billion in 10 years. And that is how you get that money for some of the asylum cases and how are you going to handle things at the border and other things. Uh, 70 of our Fortune 500 companies are headed up by people from other countries. 25% of our U.S. Nobel laureates were born in other countries. You know the small businesses that are started by immigrants. You know what this means in Nevada. We can get this done. Workforce training. Why don't we match our economic needs to our education system? That means investing in K through 12. That means respecting the fastest growing jobs in America, which are one and two year degrees. That means understanding we're gonna have over a million openings for home health care workers. We're gonna have over 100,000 openings for nursing assistants. We don't know how to fill them right now. We're gonna have over 70,000 openings for electricians. We are not gonna have a shortage of MBAs respect MBAs out there. In this country, we are going to have a shortage of plumbers. That is true. So we have to look at how we respect the dignity of these jobs, how we fill these jobs, doubling Pell Grants, making sure the aid goes to where people are, and matching our education system. I know it doesn't fit on a bumper sticker. I get that. Maybe you'll have an idea. And I know I'm not throwing in a free car. But I'm telling you, we can do this and make it better. Last thing I want to bring up, because we're in Nevada, how important this is, is climate change. Climate change. Doing something about it. Getting us back into the International Climate Change Agreement. Doing this in a way with the clean power rules and the gas mileage standards and getting that how we do this matters, that there's so much we can do in this state to develop that energy, renewable energy, to have more jobs come in if we do this right. And that we make sure the money we get when we put a price on carbon, however we do it, and we create those incentives, there's gonna be trillions of dollars that come in, that it goes back to people. It goes back to people that it's gonna be a change in their jobs, it goes back to people with incentives, it goes back to people to help them with their energy bills. We can do this, but we have to put someone on the top of the ticket that can win big. Not just by an eat by a victory at four in the morning, that can win the congressional seats in Nevada, and yes, can win the U.S. Senate rate in the state of Arizona. 
You have to help us with that. Mark Kelly, astronaut, can win that seat. And we do all that, we can then get gun safety legislation done. And I come, I come from a big hunting state. I always look at these things, does this hurt my Uncle Dick in the deer stand? No, it does not. Not universal background checks. The majority of hunters want them now. The majority of Trump voters want them now. But Trump folds to the NRA and we can't get it done. We can get this done. So I ask you to join us. I am the one in the green bus. We are not this rich campaign, but we have done so much better. Up to last week, double digits in a national poll. And that is because regular people are joining us from all over this country because they get that we need to win big and we need to build this big coalition. So I'm going to end because this is my last time, except for this afternoon, that I can tell this holiday story because then it will be untimely. Um, but this actually, last week uh, when our family was at our Christmas Eve service, we're sitting out there in the church, and our daughter is now 24. And I was remembering back to when she was sitting in those same pews in that same church with me when she was four years old. And she was to play the angel in the nativity play. And she had these huge drooping wings on, and she would not go out to practice. And I said, why won't go? you go out there? And she said, because I want to be the donkey. <laughs> And I said, no, 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 you cannot be the donkey. Timmy and Joey, these hot teenage boys, they, they're the donkey. Well, then I want to be Mary. I go, no, 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 Mary is 14. I go, I don't get why you don't want to be the angel. And she looks up at the top of the church. She goes, Mom, I don't know how to tell them. I don't know how to fly. <laughs> and I said to her that day, you know what, honey? Not all angels fly. And you are truly the guardian angels of our democracy right now. You could be doing so much else with your time. Uh, you could be going out with your family, but you are here on this beautiful sunny day where I don't really want to leave and go back to the snowstorm, but you are here because you get that you are maybe not wearing those wings, but you're giving other people the wings to fly by standing up for our country, by standing up for our democracy. So I thank you for being here today. I ask you to join our campaign. Help us sign up on the website at amyklobuchar.com. We're gonna win this Nevada. Thank you, Reno. Senator, I'm going to ask that you line up there at the stairwell. We're going to take a picture here, and we're going to exit to my left. Okay? Thank you so much. If anyone cannot come, um, are we going to be on the stairs? Oh, if you can't come up, we will come to you. All right. Thank you. End of formal speech with U.S. Senator Amy Klobuchar. Send this bookstore.